You realize I had trouble getting to the microphone. I'm so old. <laughs> I came in when I was 12. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. My name is Jones, and I'm a grateful recovering Eleanor member from the Orange Park South Group in Jacksonville, Florida. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> when Martha called me on, on Wednesday night to find out what time my plane was coming in, um, I could barely talk. I had such a real bad cold. And uh, so if I have to stop and cough and carry on while I'm up here, I hope you'll understand. Uh, it's so much better since I've been up here this weekend. It must be the love I'm receiving. It's making it better. This is a spiritual, this is our spiritual meeting this morning. It's the wind-up of our convention, and I would like to thank the committee for inviting me and for extending to me such a warm hand of hospitality. I'd like to especially thank uh, Martha and Jewel for picking me up in the airport and giving me that little tense feeling when they weren't there at the gate to meet me. Uh, it sort of keeps you on your toes and makes you humble. <laughs> they didn't even know to meet me, but they were outside the the thing you go through, you know, where you put your bag in and they find it, you've got a G-U-N in it. <coughs> and they were there and I knew they would be. Uh, I'd like to thank the committee for uh, the lovely room I have and the basket of fruit. I've eaten just about everything the first night. <laughs> it was really nice. I really appreciate it. Uh, I have felt such warmth and love and acceptance from you all this weekend that it makes what I have to do this morning a whole lot easier. Uh, I, I would just like to explain, I, I'm different from the other speakers. I, I'm really different. You're going to see the difference. <laughs> uh, um, they got up here and told how Irish Catholic, Catholic, ten kids, nine kids. I'm so I feel rather inadequate up here this morning. <laughs> I'm a Methodist and I've only had two. <laughs> Thank you, Carly. <laughs> but uh, I hope you don't hold that against me. <laughs> I've done my bit. <laughs> um, I, I, you'll find also that my story is, is quite a bit different, and, and that's the wonderful part of Al-Anon, that um, our circumstances are different, but our pain is the same, and that's what brought, brings us together. Uh, I worry about people that try and identify with, with their circumstances in Al-Anon, uh, trying to find a red-haired lady that is married to a bald-headed man that chews cigars, that watches Dallas, that, you know, <laughs> Thursday night Al-Anon meeting, uh, trying to find somebody exactly like they are. I try to identify with people's attitudes and reactions, and that's what, that's what helped, but kept me coming to Al-Anon was your attitudes and reactions were so like mine, and I knew I wasn't crazy. And you, you made me feel that way, and you, you loved me even though I was half crazy. Um, I would like to start out by reading something from a fairly brand new piece of literature, and I'm really pro Al-Anon literature, so I want you all to get this little book. It's called As We Understood, and <clears throat> I'm very fond of it. And it's just one little short paragraph, and it might set the tone for our meeting this morning. To know that you are human, and so am I to love others enough to give them rights I would like to have for myself, to hold the hand of one in pain, to have someone say, I understand. These are things spiritual. That means a lot to me. <clears throat> well, I hope this morning that I can hold the mirror of my life up and let you look into it, as you have done with me for 22 long years. Um, you have held the mirror of your life up so I could see it. And in, and, and in seeing your life, I got, I got well, weller. You, let me, you revealed yourself to me. You shared with me your hurt, your pain, your joy, your, your sorrows. And through it all, I grew. I'm going to attempt to share to you this morning, with you this morning about a little bit about what I was like, what happened, and what I'm trying to be like today. Um, I'm not going to go back to a long, terrible childhood because I didn't have one. I had a wonderful childhood with wonderful parents who loved me very much. Um, I was born in Canada. A lot of you will have trouble with my accent. They really don't know where I'm from because I say house and out and about. And then I say y'all. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my, I was a panel 16 delegate for the area of Florida, and one of my cohorts is sitting in the front row down there. 
uh, who was who served on the same panel as I was, and uh, I was uh, I was a sort of an, uh, an unusual person at the convention because I, I really was gravitated towards the Canadian delegates. I thought they were all right, <laughs> and uh, they sort of adopted me, so it was kind of nice. I had my foot in one country and one in the other. I hope you realize that I'm an alien. I'm not a United States citizen. I'm still a Canadian. Uh, which is it's very difficult to stand up in front of somebody and say you re renounce the country of your birth. It's very, very difficult. And I haven't, I haven't got well enough to do that yet, but maybe someday I will. I was born in Canada, and I hate when people start adding up their fingers. Let's see, she's been in Alamon 22 years. She's done 22 years. I'm 51. Don't I look good? I really do. Really good. I'm well preserved. <coughs> this gray hair is just for show. God's frosting. Um, I was born 51 years ago in Toronto, at Toronto, Canada, and my parents were um, used alcohol. Never saw I never saw alcohol abused. You know, I've heard of naive people coming to Al-Anon, but boy, I must have been green as grass because I never really saw anybody abuse alcohol. I lived. I must have lived in a very sheltered environment, or else I was just not tuned in. I think that was what it was. I was just wasn't tuned in. I had a younger brother, uh, seven years younger than I was. We lived a very normal childhood. Um, I, I did realize when I came to Al-Anon and I started doing my fourth step and I had to lift, list my character defects. This is the second time I did it. The first time I did it, I did it with my alcoholic, which is a mistake. <laughs> Don't ever do that. And I waited for about four more years to do it. And, and I realized that the character defects that I had written down on the paper were not ones that were fed by the disease of alcoholism. They were fed by the disease of alcoholism, but not conceived. I was like that before I met the alcoholic. Uh, I was like that when I was a child. Those insecurities, um, the, the anger that I felt, and I don't know why it was there. It was just that's the way I was. I was a very insecure person. Uh, I was very, <laughs> I hate to say this now when you all look at me, I was very underweight, <laughs> and uh, it was really a problem with me. It really was. It caused me a lot of pain in my life. Um, people called me olive oil, and that, that's not funny. You know, I mean, it's like being called fatty, only it, it hurts just the same. And that pain is real to you, and I think I carried a lot of that pain with me into my adulthood. I know I did. It's hard to believe that anybody called me thin in any time, anywhere. Um, I got married at the age of 20. Then I had the big wedding with the, I married a Scotch fella and I had the bagpipes at my wedding and the long dress and the, the dinner and the whole nine yards and I was home three years later and I said to my dad, it's too bad you can't get a refund, just, you know, but they didn't do that in those days. Uh, I realized as I was walking down the aisle to marry this man that it was wrong. It's so sad that we do these things, but I wasn't mature enough nor did I have a program for living of any description that would have given me any insight into the fact that I was doing something wrong, that it wasn't right. I did it because everybody else was getting married. It was our turn, so we got married too, and it was just so wrong, and I knew it, and it didn't last. I was back home three years later, and I resumed a... I did all the things I should have done before I got married. I traveled. I had a good job. I just... I really enjoyed myself. I dated a lot of people, and... Um, <clears throat> it takes a long time to get a divorce in Canada, and I finally got my divorce about six years later, uh, eight or five years later, and I went to Fort Lauderdale to celebrate my divorce. I went with my girlfriend to Fort Lauderdale, and it was wonderful. We had a great time. We just got brown as berries and just had a great time. Um, I was in a hotel lobby one night, and I must... I must tell you that I was a very reserved and very introverted person in those days, not like I am today. I think Alan, my husband says Alan has created a monster. <laughs> and I was standing in the lobby of this hotel, and this tall, handsome, distinguished southern gentleman came up to me, and he said, um, he looked right in my face, and he still does that to this day, he gets right in your face when he talks, which is really nice, and he said, I like you, I'm going to marry you. I thought, oh my God, I, what have I run into? And I was scared to death, but six months later we were married. I only saw this man four times before we were married. I had no trouble with the second step. <laughs>
I absolutely had no trouble with the second step. I knew I had to be nuts to do something like this. <coughs> he was in the last stages of chronic alcoholism, and I swear on a stack of Bibles, I did not know. He uh, came to visit me. I went home for my vacation, and uh, in typical alcoholic fashion, I came home with pearl earrings, a pearl ring, and a pearl necklace. They were real. I never had real pearls in my life before. Uh, this, this, I didn't know later this was typical. Um, he came to visit me in, uh, New, at New Year's Eve, and we stayed a week, and everything went fine. He drank like everybody else. Between the time I met him in New Year's Eve, he called me every night and talked for an hour on the phone. And I was so flattered. I thought this was wonderful. Until I found out after I'd been in the program for a while that alcoholics like to call long distance and they really don't care who's on the other end. <laughs> <coughs> he used to call the president, you know. And I thought this was just wonderful. And he sent roses to the office and he sent me a diamond watch regular mail, uninsured through the mail. <laughs> just, you know, you think that the light bulb would have gone on, but I was just living in this Cinderella world and he gave me a big diamond and I thought this is wonderful. And uh, we got engaged and it was, oh, it was just, I was, I mean, I was just the talk of the office. It was just Cinderella time. It was just lovely. And I really basked in it and enjoyed it. Well, he came to visit me at Easter time. Well, Easter time in Canada can be 84 degrees or two below, and he came when it was two below zero. And he phoned me, and I didn't know he was coming, and he called me at one o'clock in the morning, and he said, um, sounded really funny. And he said, can you come to the hotel? And I said, at one o'clock in the morning? Well, I really need to see you. So I got dressed and drove down to the hotel downtown, and um, the sight that greeted me when I opened the door, when he opened the door was, will be forever burned in my little memory. He was standing there in his underwear, and he was yellow, and he was bleary-eyed, and he was as drunk as I'd ever seen a human being. And I walked in the room, and he was crying, and, and he told me he'd been drinking. Well, I could have figured that one out all by myself. <laughs> and he had a huge suitcase in the room, and all he had in the suitcase was 33 pairs of socks and the biggest bottle of vodka I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> And that's all he had. There was nothing hanging in the closet. He had no shaving equipment. He had nothing. This was his. This was it. He said he picked up the wrong suitcase, but I know better. He packed that suitcase. <laughs> and he said that he just had missed me so much that he couldn't stand, and he had just had to come up and see me. And I thought that's wonderful. This is. I'm thrilled to death. Uh, I, I couldn't take him home for three days because he was too sick. And when I did take him home, he really wasn't. He should have been in a treatment center or someplace, anywhere but where he was. Um, I took him to Niagara Falls, and I really thought seriously about pushing him over because he looked like he was half there anyway, half dead anyway. We got married in May, and we it was, we had a lovely wedding in Fort Lauderdale. My parents and my family all came down, and we went to Jamaica on our honeymoon. Now, if you all have never been to Jamaica, they meet you at the airport. They have a little welcome station there, and it's called free booze, and they give you these wonderful big drinks with the fruit hanging out of them, and they're like atom bombs in glasses. <laughs> and they keep giving them to you. They're free. I could not get this man out of the airport. <laughs> he thought he'd died and gone to heaven. And I, you know, I rationalized all this. Well, you know, we're on our honeymoon. It's fun time, and this is okay. It'll all work out okay. Uh, we stayed at a beautiful hotel. Everything was so romantic and wonderful. And every night when we were getting dressed, he'd run out of cigarettes. And he'd say, I'll meet you downstairs, you, and, and uh, I'll just go down and get cigarettes, and I'll meet you downstairs. And I thought, that's fine, you know. One night, I got dressed a little quicker and went down. Of course, you all know what I found. He was in the bar just throwing them back as quick as he could, so that when I came down, he always drank Manhattans. Ooh, they, were, they smelled terrible. And he was there sipping, so he could sip his little Manhattan when I came down. And being the, the uh, Alan, I remember that I was to become, I used the, my good judgment, and I thought, I'm going to fix this, and we're going to fix it right now. So <clears throat> I took him up to the room, and I took the Gideon Bible out of the drawer, <laughs> and I made this six-foot-two thing stand there with his hand on the Bible and his other hand in the air. 
and we went through our little swearing-in ceremony, and I made him swear that he'd never take another drink as long as he lived. And he did. I mean, he swore. <laughs> and you know, he and I look back now, and I, the man probably meant it. I mean, he was so. I mean, he went through it. It was lovely. It really was very touching. Uh, and he probably did mean it. But when we got back to Fort Lauderdale from our honeymoon, things did change. They got terrible real quick. You know, I hear the talks of those who have lived with an alcoholic for years and they, they see them drift and into the disease of alcoholism. And it wasn't like that for me. It was like walking out of a hot Florida sunshine into a cold, cold shower. I got it right quick. And, you know, I've even had people in Al-Anon say to me, well you, have, well, you have no right to get up and speak. You have no right to be an Al-Anon because you never lived with an active drinker that long. I don't care if you've lived with an alcoholic for 10 minutes or 10 years. Your life has been deeply affected. <laughs> Things were not going according to my plan when we got back to Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> I thought, you know, my husband is a, is a professional man, he's a dentist, and if you've never been to a left-handed drunken dentist, you've missed one of the biggest thrills in your life. <laughs> to see that man come weaving at you with a needle is a thrill. I wouldn't let him in my mouth. I mean, now I would. And to top it all off, his initials are VD. <laughs> You don't know the things I have to bear. <laughs> I'm not being very spiritual, am I? <laughs> I used to think a spiritual meeting when I first came into Alma was like church service until I heard some drunk get up there and tell his drunk along and I thought, well, that's not very spiritual. So I realized what a spiritual meeting is. All the meetings have been spiritual. Every one of them. They've just been beautiful. Anyway, things got really bad in our house, and you know, I married this man, and I thought, well, I grew up in sort of a lower middle class family. We always didn't have any money, but we always had had enough. You know, we were okay. And I thought, well, you know, since I married a professional man, why are we living in a furnished apartment, and the only thing we owned was the bed, and why did we buy our dishes and cutlery and stuff at Kmart, and why didn't we have any money? And why were they cutting off our phone? And I just, all these whys were, were coming to my life. And I, I just didn't understand it. And I didn't understand when he tried to tell me that we were $100,000 in debt. And I, I just didn't understand all this. And I didn't relate it to the fact that he was out every night drinking. I just, it, it was just so strange. And I was here, I was a brand new bride. And my husband did not drink at home. To my, I mean, he didn't visibly drink in front of me. He liked the bar atmosphere. He liked the, the tinkling glasses and the music and the broads and the, the whole, you know, everything that goes with bar drinking. And he liked that. So about 10 o'clock every night, he'd get all dressed up in his suit and tie. And I knew that he was going out. He always liked to look nice when he went to Joe's bar, you know. <laughs> <coughs> That's where he started out. It got worse. <laughs> and I knew that, that uh, I might not see him for a day or so. Um, I was a windowsill fitter. Y'all have done that. I know you have. Uh, I would sit at the windowsill all night, and I had a windowsill that was pretty high, and I had to stand on a bench to get at it because, and, and I was, you know, I, I think I got a bad back these days just because of that, because I stood at the windowsill so much. But those nights are long, and those nights are lonely, and those nights are not 12 hours; they're 48 hours long. And strange, your mind does strange things to you in the night. You ever notice when you're sick, you're always sickest at night? And as soon as the daylight comes, you begin to feel better. It's like when we come to Al-Anon for the first time, the things that were, we've hidden in the closet and the things that were in the closets of our mind that were dark and hidden, when we bring them out into the light and let someone else look at them and share them with us, it doesn't seem so bad. But those dark nights that I experienced were long and they were lonely. Alcoholism is a lonely disease for everybody that's affected by it. I have never felt so alone in all my life. We led a strange kind of life in those days. It was very small. It was very, it wasn't even private. It was just, it was just a strange life. I had a hobby in those days. <clears throat> I gave up my hobby a few years ago. 
because it was non-productive. And it was called Hunting for Bottles. <laughs> and I'd lock the door the days that he, that he did go to the office, and I would hunt for bottles. This is what I did. I thought it was a very smart thing to do. And I knew where to go. I knew where to find them. I found them in the top of the, of the uh, light fixtures. I found them in the toilet tank, kept it nice and cool in there. I found it everywhere. And I would line them up on the, on the kitchen table, and I would put them in pyramids and squares so that when he came in the door, he would be so shocked at seeing all these bottles that he wouldn't drink anymore. It worked about as well as the Bible thing in Jamaica, you know. <laughs> it didn't work at all. But this is how I spent my day. And if, when I wasn't doing that, I'd go down to the office and I'd watch them. And I'd watch him all day. That's what I do. And I'd watch him, and he'd get drunker and drunker, and I never saw him take a drink. And I thought, this is strange. He must be taking pills or something. But no, it was, he was drinking, and I just didn't catch him at it. He was, he was good. He was really good. Uh, well, we cleaned out his office when he quit drinking. We found three bushel baskets full of half-pint vodka bottles in his office alone. So, you know, he, was, he had a growing concern down there. And I watched this man drink and could never figure out why he drank. And I spent a lot of time on that subject, even after I came into Al-Anon, why he drank. And I drove myself crazy. Um, this man drove a motorcycle when he drank, um, and he never liked to ride it when he was sober. He only liked to ride it when he was drinking. So he, at night, he would ride his motorcycle down the main street of Bard Boulevard, which is the main drag of Fort Lauderdale, and he'd ride along the yellow line because that's all he could see. That's the one line that separates this traffic from this traffic, you know? And that's crazy. But I was on the, in the car following him on the yellow line, <laughs> as close to that motorcycle as I could get. I followed him all over town. I followed him to the strangest places I've ever been in my life. And when I got there, I'd have the big confrontation. And I'd waste all this energy on these speeches, and he'd just stand there and look at me. He said, I was just going out for cigarettes. And it was just, it nearly broke my heart. I, I just didn't know what to do. I tried everything. I, I went through all the things that you all have done. I cried, I begged, I pleaded, I screamed. I became a person that I just absolutely detested. I became a person that, that I always used to be critical of this type of person. I didn't have time to make the bed. I didn't have time to do the dishes. I, I just was so obsessed with this man. That's all I could think of. <coughs> things got worse. I mean, they really got bad, and it, it happened in, I'm, when I'm talking all these things, I'm talking in a matter of a month or so all these things happened to me, and it, 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 was, it was devastating to me. I could not share this with anyone. There was no one I could talk to. Uh, I, was, I was even starting my resentment period then. I hated his family because I think they, they should have told me about this man, and they probably said, Phew, she can take him now. We're, we're sick of him. You know, I'm pretty sure that's what they did because he'd run them ragged too. Uh, uh, he had three children from another marriage and he and the children and the ex-wife lived around the corner. It was so wonderful. I'd run into her in the grocery store. And we had, he had visitation rights to the children. They were very nice children and I've come to love them dearly today. I wasn't so sure in those days. Um, by this time, my husband had tried to quit drinking, and my husband also can write prescriptions, and some uh, psychiatrist had put him on a little magic pill called Librium, and I think you all know what it is. It's like Valium, only well, it's, it's just about the same thing. And the uh, psychiatrist had told him years ago to take one five milligram in the morning and one five milligram in the night in the afternoon, and he was just working under too much pressure, and and that it, it would calm him down and he would feel fine. So he whipped up this old prescription, and he had it filled, and he only he rewrote it to read uh, 25 milligram, and he said if two is good, then I'll just. He was taking about 15 or 16, 25 milligram Librium a day, which should kill a horse, really should. I mean, when you all talked about serenity when I first came into this meeting, I, I, this was my definition of serenity. Every time this man sat down, he passed out, or he went to sleep. I mean, he would just be sitting in a straight back chair, and he'd be immobile for two seconds, and he'd just, he'd just go out on me. It was like living with a zombie. 
I couldn't get through. He talked in this monotone voice when he was on the equilibrium, and he couldn't. I couldn't penetrate the wall. At least with the alcohol, I could. I could get some sort of reaction from him with my rantings and my ravings, which I did a lot of, and kicking. And I identified with you when you said you you were abusing your husband because I used to abuse mine terribly. Um, he always wondered why he kept falling out of bed. It was because I pushed him. I just couldn't stand any longer. I get so mad, I just put my knee, I put my foot in the back of his bag and let him have it. And he wake up in the morning and think, God, my bag is just killing me. Why was I on the floor when I woke up? <clears throat> he snored like a pig when he drank, and he terrible. Still does that. And I thought the drinking would clear that up and didn't clear anything up. <clears throat> At least it smells better anyway. <laughs> the, um, Anyway, he had visited, he was on the equilibrium, and he took the we took the children out for dinner one night, and he dropped them off first, and or dropped me off first, which was strange. And uh, by this time, I was um, about six weeks pregnant, and uh, he uh, came home a couple hours later. It was a long time, and he walked in, and and uh, I knew something was wrong. And he, in his this calm, monotone voice, he uh, informed me that. Uh, that his wife, his ex-wife, and his children thought it would be a good idea if he was to come back home, and he thought it was a good idea too. And I would just have to go back to Canada. That's all there was to it. It was like canceling a check. <laughs> you know, I punched my ticket, and away I went. Well, I just went berserk. I just absolutely lost it. And let me paint you a little word picture of what was going on in our apartment that night. You know, it's good to laugh about it now, but I couldn't laugh about it. It was so tragic. Uh, and yet, it, when I think of this picture that I'm going to paint for you, it was really very funny. He called. He I called his mother and his sister, and they came over, and we were all in the bedroom together, all five of us. Uh, I was throwing things in a suitcase and crying and screaming and carrying on. Uh, she, the, my mother-in-law was screaming at him. She was. My sister-in-law was screaming at him. Everything was in total chaos, and this man sat on the bed and went sound asleep in the middle of a whole thing. <laughs> That, I mean, that's a blow to your ego when somebody does that. He doesn't even remember this. He doesn't remember, I mean, I have to tell him this. He says, is that what happened? Oh, that's terrible, he says. That's just awful when I told him later. And I, I can remember him driving me down to Miami and putting me on the airplane and, and patting my back and saying, it'll be all right. And I was ready to kill this man. I was just bristling. I was just so angry and so full of everything. I, was just, I just wanted to kill him. It was all I could do to keep my hands off him. You know, I went home to Canada this year. I go home every year to see my parents, and it's a three-hour, about a three-hour flight to Toronto. And I think about this flight that I took 23 years ago every time I go home because I don't think we can afford to forget what it was like. That flight was terrible. I cried all the way to Toronto, and the stewardess kept saying, is there anything I can do? And I said, oh, I wish you could. Just, I wanted somebody to take this pain away from me. I hurt so bad. Here I was coming back home again, all this time I was carrying a child, and I had never had any children before, and I wanted this one badly, and I was just, I was just a wreck, and my parents were there to meet me, and they were so angry too, and everybody was angry, and everybody was hurt, and everybody was just devastated by what had happened, and I was ashamed. I, w I don't know why, but I was ashamed. I was ashamed that I had made such a terrible choice. I was ashamed that I was married to a drunk. I was ashamed that somebody had let me become the way I was. And I was just I was just thoroughly washed in shame. I went to bed that night and I didn't know how to pray in those days. You can tell how much I knew about the Bible by getting an alcoholic to swear on it. I knew nothing about spiritual life at all. Uh, and yet when I got into bed that night, you know, we Alanons reach our bottom too. And it's just as devastating and just as painful. And it's just as far down as the alcoholic goes. And I remember laying there in bed that night and just saying the first prayer I've ever, honest prayer I've ever said in my life. And that was please. And I didn't even know who I was talking to. And I didn't even know what I wanted them to do. I just wanted them to make it better. Somebody, please help me. Vince called the next morning and said that he had <coughs> made one big mistake and and he didn't tell me anything I didn't know. No, I guess. <laughs> and he said that uh, he and his. I 
shouldn't be telling this. Maybe I will. Though. He and his ex-wife had gone. She had coerced him into going over to Fort Myers, which is across the state, for the night. And um, oh, he's going to kill me for telling you this. <laughs> and she, he said that she tried to make up one night what she hadn't done in 19 years. And he was just too drunk and too full of pills, and he fell asleep. <laughs> <coughs> I felt good about that, and, um, and he asked me if I'd come back. Well, I, I wasn't too sure whether I wanted to come back, and yet there was something telling me that I, that I should. Everybody said, no, you shouldn't go back, but I did, and my father came with me because he wanted to see what kind of a ding-dong I'd marry. And Vince, in the meantime, had checked himself into a drying-out place clinic in Miami. In those days, they did not have the facilities they have today. This was strictly a drying out place. They dried them out, and he, they threw them out. That's about, that's about the way it was. And he met me at the airport, and again, he was yellow, and he was shaking, but he was sober. And he said the magic words to me, I've joined, I've gone back to AA. I said, what do you mean you've gone back to AA? He'd been in out of AA for four years before he met me, and I didn't know, he hadn't shared that with me. And... And that was the end of our trouble. He went back to AA. That's a big lie, and you know it. <laughs> <clears throat> well, we went back to AA. We went back to closed AA meetings. We did. And we sat together. Now, I don't know how you feel about this, and I might get a lot of dissension about this, but I don't believe Al-Anons have any, member, have any right to be in a closed AA meeting. And I was there, and I sat right beside him, and I, I nudged him every time the speaker said something I thought he ought to hear, <laughs> and I took a pen and pencil with me, and I took notes, because I did not want this stupid person who couldn't stay sober to miss a thing. I was so much smarter than he was. You know, I really believe the fellowship before and after meeting is so important in Al-Anon and uh, NAA. Uh, that's the time you get to do the one-on-one -on -one sharing that, that isn't possible in a meeting, and I don't think it should be used to sell Tupperware or Mary Kay or whatever. I think that's part of my meeting starts when I get in the car to go to my meeting. I'm in an attitude of a meeting when I start out that morning or that night. Anyway, I didn't even give them that chance. I was right there after the, after the meeting with all the boys. There wasn't many women in AA then. And I was telling them how to, how to run the meetings and how they could improve, and this speaker wasn't very good, and, and the coffee was lousy, and how they should all stay sober. I was a pain in the you-know-what. That man stayed sober in spite of me. I was terrible. And this went on for quite some time until finally the girl who was to become my first sponsor, and she didn't call me Deary. She called me Tootsie, and I hated that because that was not my name. And she came up to me, and she... On, one night when I was there doing my thing, and uh, she got right in my face, and she grabbed my arm, and she said, Tootsie, it's time you went to Al-Anon, and I'm taking you Monday night. I said, oh, no, we can't go Monday night. That's the AA meeting night. She said, I'll pick you up at 8 o'clock Monday night. You be ready. I said, I can't go. I, I need to go to my other meeting. She said, this will help, Ben. And I said, oh, all right, I'll go. I'll go. So she picked me up at 8 o'clock and took me to my first Al-Anon meeting, <clears throat> and what a revelation it was. I hated it. <clears throat> I hated you all because you all looked so nice. By this time, I had relegated to wearing a brown sweatshirt and brown jeans, and I didn't comb my hair, and I didn't wear makeup, and I looked like I was married to an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the way you're... So that was my badge of honor. I was suffering. <laughs> And I walked into this room, and y'all were sitting there smiling and, and being so sweet. And come on in, honey. We're, we're glad to have you. And they were all little old ladies with gray hair, just the way I look today. <laughs> you live to eat your words. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't like it at all. I really didn't. They, they wouldn't let me talk about him. I mean, they didn't not let me. They just encouraged me not to in a very loving way. But in my ears, they were saying to me, you can't talk about him. And I had so much to tell these poor little old ladies who I knew had never suffered like I had. And I had, and I had so much to tell them, and they didn't really want to hear it. And in those days, I promised her I'd go for six weeks. And in those days, a promise meant nothing to me. I would have broken it just, just, to, just because I wanted to. Um, but there was something that kept coming, made me keep coming back. 
And it wasn't literature because we didn't have much in those days. And what we had was very sparse. We didn't have the ODAT. We didn't have anything. It was, well, there wasn't much. And it wasn't the coffee because in those days I didn't drink coffee. I learned how to do that and everything on. It wasn't because I liked these women because I really didn't. But what brought me back every, every week was what I see here this morning, that inexplainable light that I see in your eyes. The, the glow, the, I guess it's called serenity, isn't it? And I didn't have any of that. And I see tons of it here this morning. And I felt those waves of love coming at me just the way I do this morning, that unconditional love that in the sad shape that I was in, you loved me anyway. And that's what kept me coming back. I, w I did my six weeks and I did six weeks more. And I, and I began to like these women. <clears throat> I didn't like what they said particularly because they stepped on my toes a lot but I respected them for what they were they were all the things that I wasn't they were happy they were serene they were accepting they were tolerant they were loving they were not filled with anger and resentment like I was I had a resentment against the world I hated every bartender in town every time I went by a, a, a a beer ad on the highway I went Ugh. I just I bristled I talked to a lot of girls that I sponsor about <clears throat> being clanky and I was real clanky in those days you know nowadays they have plastic garbage bags and they don't they didn't have them in those days we had steel garbage pails and I carried a full load of garbage around with me in a clanky steel garbage pail and I clanked and I clanked real bad you know, you can even clank with a plastic garbage bag if you put your mind to it. And I talked to a lot of girls I sponsor about getting rid of that garbage so they don't clank anymore. I was abrasive. I rubbed people the wrong way all the time. It was because I had no self-esteem of my own. I had no serenity of my own. I was not happy. I was just filled with all these things. And I was clanking them around in this old steel garbage pail for everybody to see. I guess I got a little weller than what I thought I did because our baby was born April the 22nd, beautiful boy, 22 years old now, and uh, going to be a professional golfer, and he's just the light of my life. I love him dearly. Um, he was born, and three weeks after he was born, my husband decided to go out and do a little research and development in the field of alcoholism again. For those of you who don't know, he had a slip. <laughs> and he, he did just like he did before. He picked his time. <clears throat> he always used to get drunk at weddings, funerals, anything that was important, you know. And he picked the time that the ADA, which is the American Dental Association, had their huge conference at the Fontainebleau down on Miami Beach. And he decided that uh, he got drunk and he would go down and tell them all what he thought about them. And he did. And he made a fool of himself, and, and he's had to make amends since, which he did. And, you know, I don't know what the slip did for Vince. He only drank for three days. I can only share with you what the slip did for me. It was like God saying, I'm opening the crack of the door of Al-Anon so that you can look in, and just I'll give you just a little glimpse of what Al-Anon can do and will do if you'll let it come into your life and be a part of your life and make a commitment to it. Those three days were so different than the months I had spent pr uh, prior to that. I went to bed, I went to sleep. I didn't like the fact that he was drinking, but I handled it so much better. I didn't stand at the windowsill. I didn't get all torn up inside. I knew that this is something that Vince had to go through and that I couldn't go through it for him, that I could not go down to the Fontainebleau Hotel and, and walk around behind him and apologize to everybody like I would have done months ago. I couldn't do that anymore. It was not my responsibility anymore. And I felt like God was taking that responsibility of that six-foot-two man and finally relieving me of it. And what a relief it was when I didn't have to carry him around anymore. It was wonderful. I felt like a person for the first time in my life. I went back to Al-Anon. Oh, I never stopped going, but I went back with new eyes, new ears, and a new heart. You let me see what you could be in my life if I would let you. And I, I looked at you through different eyes when I went back after that slip. I truly did. And my life began to change. And the quality of our life began to change greatly. 
<clears throat> we are like two trains going down different railway tracks, but we're heading for the same station. I can't work his program for him, and he can't work it for me. I can't 12-step an AA, and they can't 12-step me. But I can 12-step an Al-Anon member because I've walked in your shoes, and I don't care what size you take. I have been in them. I have suffered your pain. I have suffered your resentments and your anger. And that's the common bond that brings us together. Uh, four years after uh, Carrie was born, we decided we would like to have another baby. And my husband is 15 years older than me, and this took a lot of courage on his part. Uh, he was not a young man when Carrie was born, but I kept him young. And we decided we have a little, we'd have another baby, and we prayed about it, and we wanted a little girl. And she was born, <clears throat> and she only lived 14 hours. Uh, this, I guess, when I look back on my life, this was the lowest I, I've ever felt, the saddest I have ever felt in my life. And I went through the normal human reaction of the first hour. I, remember, I can remember pounding on, I knew something was wrong. I went to bed and she was fine. And the next morning when I saw Vince and my minister standing at my hotel, at my, uh, hotel my hospital room door, I knew something was wrong. And then they told me that she had passed away during the night and I never even got to hold her. And uh, I'm sorry. I think after all these years, it wouldn't, the, the wounds would heal, wouldn't you? Uh, I remember pounding on the bed and, and cursing God and saying, why did you do this to me? I can remember that as clear as if it was yesterday. But I can also remember them moving me to a private room out of the maternity wing. And you were there waiting for me. You were there with your arms waiting for me. You weren't there physically. You were there spiritually. And I felt it. Everybody in our, in our group knew that the baby had passed away. And you were there. I can't tell you what a spiritual experience that was going through that, those next few weeks. You don't often think of the death of a baby as a spiritual experience, but this truly was in my life. It affected so many changes in my life and in my family's life. My parents came to know God in a very real way because of the of the things that went on in our house during that during that period. The friends and relatives and people from AA that were coming in and Alan on and loving us and putting their arms around us and saying, "We know, we understand. We may not have been there, but we understand your pain, and we love you anyway." <clears throat> That's the kind of love you can't buy at the Elks Club. You can't buy it at the Ladies Club. You can only find it in this fellowship. The love that says, we understand, we care. We can't do anything about it, but we can be there for you. I don't know that I ever appreciated Al-Anon up until that point the way I did that and during that period. You came to mean everything to me. You were my, you were my life then. You were my lifeline. <clears throat> if I'd have gone through that prior to Al-Anon, I probably would have ended up in the booby hatch because I was a candidate for it anyway. <clears throat> this was in 1969. 1970, my husband and I had the uh, privilege of going to the um, international convention in Miami, AA International in Miami Beach. And my husband was assigned to security. And guess what his job was? He had to look after Lois, our Lois. And uh, it, was, it was great. We got to... Uh, they would um, have lunch every day with Lois in the Fontainebleau Hotel in her suite, and we got to drive. Bill was in the hospital, and he was in the Miami Heart Institute, and he was in real bad shape. And she would go twice a day to the hospital, and our job was to take her to the hospital and wait for her, and then bring her back and have lunch with her, and then take her back in the afternoon. And my husband got in uh, to see Bill and speak with him and share with him. I got to spend so much time with Lois. It was, it was truly wonderful. She's six years old now and still going strong. Uh, she was she's she's everything that the Al-Anon program epitomizes. She's she's gutsy. That's the only, that's the word I like to describe Lois. She's gutsy, and uh, I I admire her very much. So that was a very high point in our life. <clears throat> At that convention, we my husband met a man from Belgium, and we our son oldest son Doug was stationed over in Germany at that time, and we were planning a trip to go over to see him in September. And this man heard that we were coming over, so he said. Uh, asked my husband if he would like to speak in a meeting over there. And he said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. So we, uh, in September, we 
flew over to Luxembourg, rented a car, and drove to Belgium. And we picked up a newspaper when we got into town. And across the headlines, this is what it said. Dr. Vince Splain will be the speaker at the local Alcoholics Anonymous meeting tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So we took the paper bags off our head and went in. (laughs) That was a wonderful experience. He shared, uh, he spoke in English. My husband had studied German before we went over, which made the trip really nice. Uh, but he was translated into three languages simultaneously, uh, French, German, and Flemish. And I sat with two little Alamon ladies over in the corner here. There were only two in town. One was German, one was French, and they didn't speak each other's language, and, and yet we communicated. It was wonderful. It really was. And uh, it was just the high, it was really a high point of our trip. We carried on with our, with our trip, and <clears throat> my husband totaled his first car sober. We were driving over a bridge in Germany, at Koblenz, and uh, we were rubbernecking, looking around, and he stopped, everybody else on the bridge stopped, and we didn't. We took about eight cars with us, and they took him to the police station, the car to the dump, and me to the hospital. I was in real bad shape. My face had, uh, they'd had no shatterproof windshields in the little Mickey Mouse car we were driving, and the glass in the windshield came back on my face, and I was very badly cut up. My, my face was all torn up. And they took me to a German hospital that nobody spoke English. And I had laughed at Vince when he had sat in the chair learning his German out loud. I had laughed and made fun of him, and boy, I wish I'd have sat in the chair and learned how to speak German too, because I was in this hospital, and um, it was uh, run by a Catholic, a Catholic nun, and uh, she came in and she came in with the rosary beads, and she started praying over me, and I, I thought I was dying. And all I could say was, "I'm not Catholic." I'm not Catholic. <laughs> I didn't care that I was dying. I just wasn't Catholic, you know. <laughs> first things first, you know. <clears throat> I had such a sense of priorities in those days, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was in the hospital for three days, and I don't know whoever stitched up my face, but they did an excellent job. I mean, I, I, I have scars that I know they're there, but you probably don't know they're there. You probably can't see them. Uh, and while I was in the hospital, my husband had the international directory with him, and he called the contact there in Koblenz. And coincidentally, the man could speak excellent English, he and his wife. Uh, I mean, we what they think of as excellent English. And the night that I got out of the hospital, I looked dreadful. I mean, uh, the only reason they let me out was because my husband could take my stitches out later. I still had all these stitches in my face. I looked like Dracula's mother. And they took us to a meeting. They took my husband into the AA room, and I went into the Alamon room, and all the little German women were sitting around, and I felt like I was in my home group. It was a wonderful experience. They could not speak English at all. Only Molly could speak just a little bit, and they asked me to speak, and I thought, isn't that silly? I, they won't understand me. But I did, and they did. They understood me. They, they understood the, the language of the heart that this fellowship has. They knew that, no, they didn't understand exactly what I was saying. They, they understood that I had been in their shoes. All the way across Germany, I had been in their shoes. It was a wonderful experience. We still keep in contact with these people. We've had their daughter stay in our home for a year. We've had the father stay in our home for a year. It's just been, it's been wonderful just to have this experience. We went to the intergroup office in Paris, and that was a nice experience. Uh, we got back, and by this time, I was getting a little intrigued by being in service, and I, I scratched my head at a, at a group meeting one night, and I became the group representative. <laughs> and I thought, this is all right, you know. I went to the district meeting the next week, and I scratched my head again and became the group uh, the district representative. <clears throat> well, I really got important. I really did. Um, I had this district of nine, big nine groups, and I had a briefcase and I had papers, and I had books, and I was important. I really was. And I whipped them, that gang into shape, I'll tell you. When I went out of office, we had 26 groups, and they hated me. <coughs> I started, we started telephone answering service, we had PI going, we had the whole nine yards going. And I would call a district meeting once a month, and it, it would be me talking and you listening. It was General Splain calling the troops together. <laughs> and my home group was called My Group. <coughs> it was a Melrose Park group, but to me it was My Group. And it was, now it had become My District. And I, I was the most objectionable, 
person you'd ever want to run into in those days. Let me just tell you what I had become. I got so busy with my papers and my briefcase and my meetings that I forgot I got off the telephone answering service. I got off the hotline. I didn't have time to sponsor anybody. And I certainly didn't have time to chair a meeting because I was too important to do that. I had to visit all my little groups and see that everybody was doing it correctly. Um, if somebody did something correctly, incorrectly in the middle of a meeting, I would just stop the meeting and tell this person they were doing it wrong. That's not the way you do it in Illinois. I mean, there was no love attached to this at all. It was just, I was right and you were wrong. In those days, if you'd have asked me how I was, I would have said, oh, I'm just fine. Vince has been sober eight years. Do you see where my head was at? This is, not a this is not a safe place to be. This is not a good place to be. I went to my district meeting one day, and I'd whip the troops in shape and give them their marching orders, and off they went. And I went home with my little briefcase, and I walked in the den, and my husband was sitting in his lazy boy chair, as he always is, and he looked funny, and he smelled funny, and he was drinking. And I've been in Illinois for eight years by this time. Eight years of meetings. <clears throat> and my first words out of my mouth were, look what you've done to me. And the briefcase flew up in the air, the papers went flying, and I acted like I'd never set foot in the door of Illinois before. I cannot believe that I reverted back so quickly to what I had hated the most in my life. To the person I hated the most, I reverted back to in just a matter of minutes. I ranted, I raved, I screamed, and the poor man just sort of slunk down in his chair. And I just berated him for all I could do. I had a tongue that would cut you to ribbons in those days. I still have that tongue. I have to watch it all the time. I finally got so mad at he wasn't responding to my rantings and ravings that I finally called up somebody that I thought might give me some sympathy. I called up my sponsor. <laughs> Wrong. She said, Tootsie, and she hadn't called me that in eight years. <laughs> I thought I'd outgrown Tootsie. She said, Tootsie, be ready at 7.30 on Monday night. I said, I do not want to chair the beginner's meeting again. She said, I didn't say that. I said, be ready at 7.30. She says, you're not going to chair the meeting. You are going to the meeting. I said, I can drive myself. She says, you won't go. I'll pick you up at 7.30. So she picked me up, and we walked towards the beginner's meeting. And... Uh, of course, they all said, oh, are you going to cheer tonight, Joni? And I said, and I started to cry. And I said, no, I'm here to listen. And I went, we, we, used, we used the six weeks format from World Service. And I sat there, and I kept my mouth shut, and I took the cotton out of my, ear, my, my, my ears, and I stuffed it in my mouth, and I listened for the first time in eight years. It took me that long to realize that I didn't know it all. <clears throat> and I sat there and I listened to these newcomers and I suffered right along with them because I had become a newcomer again. The pain was very real to me again. The anger was very real to me again. I was starting to carry resentment again. I'm so grateful for Rose and for knowing Tootsie for what she was because Tootsie doesn't have to be, it's very, very seldom I have to be called Tootsie and when I need to be called Tootsie I'll call her up. And she'll let me have it once more, even though she's not active in the program. She still knows me pretty well. That was a good six weeks for me. It really was. I began to see myself as I really was. I began to work the steps in my life, not just... You know, it's easy to be a good Al-Anon member on Monday night between 8 and 9, isn't it? Really easy, because you know the lingo. You know what everybody expects you to say. It's easy to be a good Al-Anon member at a convention like this because everybody's talking the same language as you are. But you get outside in the world and they don't talk the same language as we do. So you have to have a language and you have to have, a, you have, to have more than the language. You have to have something inside of you that can say, I can function in the outside world and make it because I have something special going on inside of me. Al-Anon is not my whole life. It's my way of life. It's my program for living. Al-Anon has opened doors to me that I never thought would ever be opened before. 
I do things now I never dreamed I would do before. <coughs> um, things went real well and I became, I became the area delegate for Florida. And that was a big thrill. And thank goodness I got my head screwed on a little bit before I became delegate. It, I mean, to go to be a delegate and not have your head screwed on right is tragic, isn't it? I mean, it's dangerous. And I went to New York, and it was wonderful. I met Edith, and uh, we became good friends. And I met a lot of wonderful people out there. It's a wonderful thing to stand there and say the Lord's Prayer with somebody from Finland on one side of you and somebody from Arizona on the other side. And I cried every time they said the Lord's Prayer. I thought it was just great. The third year I was there, I've always had a humility problem in Al-Anon. I've always needed to have God say, sit down and shut up. And <clears throat> he's always doing it to me because I need it. The third year you're a delegate, the delegates, your panel votes on who they'd like to be the spiritual speaker, the two spiritual speakers on Saturday morning, which is the close of the convention or the conference. And I was lucky enough to be picked. <coughs> Betty R. from California and I were picked. <laughs> And uh, now we just don't laugh out loud. And I got me a new dress, and I really looked nice. I had a nice pink flowered dress on. I really looked pretty spiffy. I thought I did. And I did my meditations in the room that morning. I roomed with Marge Wallace, and oh, I just blew around in him, didn't I? And we, um, you know, I said, I need some quiet time. I need to give this over to God, which I thought I did. And I got up there, and I sat behind the podium, and Betty spoke first, and. I, she was doing a real nice job, and I had a funny feeling come over me. It's called nausea. <laughs> and I either had I had two options: was either throw up all over Betty, or leave from the door that was to my right over here. And being a little intelligent, I left. And I made a beeline. Now, if you've ever never gone into a public washroom in a New York old hotel, you haven't lived. And here I was in my pretty new pink dress on the floor in one of the cubicles, throwing up. I didn't promise this to be a class act, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and there I was. I put the knee. I put my knee through my stocking. I had a. My dress was all dirty. And Jean Allen's pacing up and down outside the cubicle, saying, "Are you going to be all right? Are you going to be all right?" Oh, I don't know. <laughs> and I was just thought I was going to die. Now, you're all going to think I'm weird, and you're all going to think I'm strange, but I'm going to tell you what happened in that little cubicle. I stopped throwing up. It became very quiet. And the still, small voice that still speaks to me to this day said to me, you didn't give it to me at all. You tried to do it all yourself again. You're trying to be a big shot with your briefcase again. And he was right. I was trying to do it myself. I was trying to be the best spiritual speaker the conference had ever heard. And I was so puffed up and so full of ego that God couldn't get through to me that morning. But he managed to get through to me in the cubicle. <laughs> he did get my attention. And I got up and I, Jean said, are you going to be able to speak? And I said, yes, I think so. And I walked into the room, we came back in, and, and Betty was just closing her talk. God's timing is so good. I walked in and I, I spoke. You'll have to ask Edith what I said. I have no earthly idea. I just know that I talked and didn't throw up again and sat down. <clears throat> I've always had a humility problem in Alan on it. It's difficult for me and, and that was a very vivid lesson, I must say. And I wasn't real crazy about the way he taught me that one. I went back home and uh, we were making a move then from South Florida to North Florida to a very small town which we fell in love with. We thought it was just great. They'd never had a dentist there. My husband became the first full-time dentist they'd ever had. We bought a house on a dirt road. I'd never lived in a dirt road in my life. Uh, we cleared enough land for the house and the pool and we and the woods and there we are. There we're still sitting there today. I went to my first Al-Anon meeting out there. I had to go 20 miles to an Al-Anon meeting. I'd never been more than two blocks from an Al-Anon meeting in my life. And I'd always go to the same Al-Anon meeting every Monday night. Vince and I would get in the car, and we'd go to our meeting, and he'd go in his room, and I'd go in my room, and it was all really nice, and we knew everybody. And all of a sudden, I had to go 20 miles to an Al-Anon meeting, and we went together, and uh, I went into the Al-Anon room, and they were doing it all wrong. <laughs> it was so bad. Oh, they didn't do it the way I thought they should do it. So I thought, well, I'll try another group next week. So I tried another group, and they did it wrong, too. They were doing it all wrong. So I just stopped going. 
I just said, I, I don't. I, this is aggravating fool out of me. I, I just won't. I just won't bother making that trip in. I can do. I can do without it for a while. If you have ever wandered around out there without this program, I wandered around for three months, and I reverted right back to the old naggy, angry, resentful self that I was prior to Al-Anon. I mean, I was on his back constantly. I went crawling back to Al-Anon under the door, and you know what? They shaped up. They were doing it right. <laughs> They were doing it just the same. It was me that was off base. And I heard somebody say to me one time when I was in that three-month period, if you want Al-Anon bad enough, you'll take it in any shape or form that it's offered to you. And I wanted it bad enough. So I went bad. My life today is different. Um, I've had a hard time this weekend. Not a hard time because I know it's right and I know God's working it out. But I see these couples sharing, and uh, I don't have a couple down there looking up at me. I have you, though. My husband made a conscious or unconscious decision after we moved to Middleburg not to go to meetings anymore. He doesn't go to meetings anymore. And I'm not crying because he doesn't go to meetings. I'm crying because um, a, a part of my life has been, the door has been shut on. I, I, can't, I can share with him, but only up to a point now. And I love him just as much. It, it has nothing, to, I, I mean, I fought this thing when he first stopped going to meetings. I really was on his case, and I really could not, I was like a dog with a bow, and I could not let it go. I wanted a reason. I wanted, just like when he was drinking, I wanted a reason. Why are you not going? You owe me an explanation. Why are you not going? We used to do this together. Why can't we do it together anymore? And you know what? He doesn't owe me an explanation. It's none of my business. And it took me uh, two years I agonized through this. I worked through it with sponsors and people that love me dearly. And I finally had to let it go. He's not drinking. That's not... It's not, it's not the problem. It's just he's not going to meetings. He's a dear, dear man. And I love him to death. But there's a part of our life that's shut down now. Like a line of communication that's no longer there. And, and I must say, when I see the couple sitting here, you know, enjoy it. Really enjoy it. Because you just never know. You just don't know. But you know, when I go to an Al-Anon meeting now, I know why I'm going. I ain't going because he's in there. I'm going because I need to be there. Uh, maybe this was God's way of showing me this. I have no idea. But I do, I, I work better with the newcomers now. I work better, do you know that 75% of the people in Alon have no one in another recovery program? And I work better with them now because I understand better now. I was in my little rocking chair for 15 years. And God sawed the rockers off my rocking chair and said, get on with it. I'm not really tickled with the way he did it, but then that's not my problem, is it? God's going to work it out. He's working in Vince's life. I know he is. But he's also working in my life. I have, I have grown more in the last seven years in Al-Anon than I have grew in the, last, in the 15 years prior to that because I've had to really evaluate why do I go to Al-Anon? <coughs> Why am I here? It would be real easy to stay home on a Friday morning and not go because he's not going. That would be a real good cop-out for me. But when I don't go, the quality of my life changes. There's a visible difference when I do not go to meetings and get that input and that battery charging and that love and that acceptance that I need so badly from you. I don't want you to feel sore for me. I, I spoke somewhere uh, a little, not too long ago, and several of the women came up to me and they said, Oh, you poor thing, I just feel so bad for you. I said, Oh, please, please don't say that to me. God is working it out, and I'm giving him the, the thanks and the glory for it because uh, I'm fine. I really am. Uh, things are the way they're supposed to be right now. I mean, the, for today, this is the way they are, and I'm thanking him for that. that it's okay. Uh, Vince is happy. I'm happy. I've accepted him just the way he is. I finally learned what unconditional love is. I finally learned what acceptance is, and it was tough because I don't, I don't, I don't 
buckle down easy. So my life today is good. Uh, it really is. I'm happy. I'm, I'm involved in Al-Anon. I've just finished another term as GR. I mean, what's an old delegate like me do being a GR again? But I needed to do it one more time. I really did. I hope you haven't felt that I've been the entertainment for the Sunday morning meeting because I didn't come up here on your behalf. I come up here because I needed to say it one more time. I needed to remember one more time. I needed to relive it one more time. You were there when I needed you. You've always been there for me. And for that, I'm forever grateful. Um, I always have trouble closing because I hate to say goodbye to y'all. <laughs> I've had a wonderful weekend. You have shared your lives with me this weekend, and I so appreciate that. You've held the mirror up so I could see me in it one more time because every time you tell your story, you're telling mine, and I hope I've told yours this morning. I love you all very much. Tennessee is very special to me. My husband went to dental school here, lived in Memphis, got drunk in Memphis, you know, did all those good things. <laughs> so Tennessee has real special, is a real special place for me. I love you all very much. I've made some good friends this weekend. I hope you consider me your friend. Thank you, and God bless you all.